Jenny Jones and this is Jen's Green Jam. I'm the Green Party peer in the House of Lords where I do my best to hold the government to account on a whole range of issues. And in my podcasts, I aim to encourage a debate based around the Green perspective on various topics in British politics. So each month I bring on a guest to talk about an issue which is important to me or the Green Party. And at the end of the podcast, we do some myth-busting by discussing how to counter some of the arguments you may hear in the media or talking to people on the doorstep. So I'd like to introduce you to my guest today, human rights lawyer Mike Schwartz. Hello, Jenny. Nice to speak to you. Mike's a solicitor at Bindman's who's spent more than 25 years defending political activists and campaigners in all sorts of human rights and criminal cases. He's got a particular knack for securing not guilty verdicts from juries by explaining the reasoning and justification for why activists were taking a particular action. And Mike, when we were talking about having you uh, on as a guest on the podcast, three of the people I work with realised that they'd been re- represented by you in protest cases two in the 90s and one in 2014. So either I'm employing some particularly dodgy characters or lots of our listeners will know you already um, from your work helping them. Um, is, do you think that might be true, that you're dealing with a lot of dodgy characters? I think quite the opposite, with Greens. I, I have the privilege of acting for a lot of very pr- principled, committed and vigorous campaigners, and that's probably how they've reached your office. <laughs> That's a very good. That's a very nice thing for you to say. Now I've invited you today because, like so many Greens, so many principal people, I've been involved in lots of protests, had a lot of interactions with police, and relied a lot on human rights. And you take that fight to the courts when things go bad. And I thought it'd be great to find out a little bit more about how that works. I mean, I did get arrested once, um, and I was de-arrested about three minutes later. But it was a, not a very nice experience because when you're arrested like that it takes away all power from you um especially having those handcuffs behind your back and and put on not very very nicely so mike um uh my first question is perhaps a really difficult one and that's what's the most interesting protest case that you've worked on uh obviously it's impossible to answer and this sounds very sugary but i have had the privilege of acting over many years for some marvelous people on important issues but in the current legal climate, I think the most significant is the case of what became known as the King's North Six, and they were environmental campaigners who occupied the uh, coal-fired power station in King's North about ten years ago to shut it down, send a message to the then Prime Minister Gordon Brown, and to stop or do their best, make their contribution towards reducing climate change through the CO2 emissions that were due from that power station at that time. And this was 10 years ago. And they went to trial in the Crown Court. And they had the eminent climatologist Jim Hansen giving evidence on their behalf. And they put forward arguments that they were trying to stop CO2 emissions, which at that time, in the future, this was 10 years ago, and irreparably bearing in mind tipping points, would cause damage to property and kill people. And they were found not guilty by a jury. They were fortunate enough to be able to enunciate, put forward at their trial, the reasons they took action. And the jury unanimously found them not guilty. And I think that sent a very powerful message. And so far as one can pick up the reverberations, I think it did have an impact within the government at the time, 
sadly that was 10 years on and now we've been told as you and your listeners know that we have 12 years not in 12 years time to start the process but but 12 years to fix the process to stop irreversible climate change and that's why that small contribution by me and that major contribution by those six clients was perhaps the most important uh, in the current context. Was the judge and perhaps the other lawyers, were they surprised at the verdict? From our team, we were delighted and frankly expected the verdict because when you have the line-up of the right legal argument with the right moral, legal, political argument, one expects to be perhaps naively, to be found not guilty. I think the courts and the prosecution saw this as a run-of-the-mill case. And perhaps that's how it sneaked, if I can say it now, under the radar. Obviously, the implications of that case have been broadcast more widely. But at the time, and it's a sad indictment of the legal system, the political antennae weren't there within the courts to identify this as a really significant case. So what you're saying is that what you do is present common sense and known science and that that can convince people even when they're not aware of it, even when they're ignorant beforehand. I think that's right. I mean, I have the fortunate position of acting for lovely people on important issues who are invariably right, challenging a staid, stuck-in-the-mud system which refuses to look to the future and thinks all about power and control. And that combination, on rare occasion, even in the staid legal system, bears positive results. But that's not to say there are setbacks, and there are setbacks as activists around the country and over the years know. Um, no, I've, I've been on lots and lots of protests, and um, I, I'm always telling the police that they have a duty to facilitate peaceful protest. And, and even ignore minor infractions of the law. Is that something you come up against, that the police are not prepared to do that as much anymore, that things are changing a little bit? I think it ebbs and flows. After, for example, Ian Tomlinson death during a protest, an innocent bystander at a protest, that perhaps was the high point of the police's awareness that they need to facilitate protest, protest and look after the interests of the public. But after that, I think they reacted badly to the the uh, London and uh, riots which took place in other places and that meant the police reverted to type which was to ensure there was control and clamp down on protests that they felt threatened both public order and their sense of power and I think it, it does ebb and flow but um, there are people within the police and one has to find them and appeal to them who know what the right thing to do is and who aware of their legal obligations and we'll put that into effect. But the knee-jerk reaction amongst so many, sadly, is to see any form of protest as a challenge to their power and to the status quo. When in fact it is, it is. Well, exactly. I mean, and we should all see it as a, as a reflection of a vibrant democracy that looks to change when protest is facilitated. Now, what you do is um, bring human rights into the court and, and into the process. Um, but is there any way that protesters can start that um, when they're actually there protesting, that they can, um, you know, actually present their human rights case to the police? Um, it would be nice to think that um, activists 
could do something to ensure that they're facilitating their protest before the event. But unfortunately, this is another poor feature of the legal process. It's incredibly reactive. Apart from the odd exception, like bringing a judicial review, public law challenge to an anticipated state decision. Normally, one exercises one's rights after the event, either on the back foot as a defendant in a criminal trial or suing the police. But I think one shouldn't see cases, because that's what lawyers see, in isolation, because every case that follows an event has an impact in the future, either in terms of pure precedent or in terms of persuasion. And if, and I think frankly this is the best approach, if the, if the activists assert their rights when they can in criminal trials, if when the police get it wrong they sue the police, and if through campaigns and campaigners such as NetPol or the Monitoring Project or the, the legion of campaigns around the country in support of the right to protest and seeking to hold the police to account, and, and frankly politicians like you when you were on the GLA holding the police to account. There is a process beyond pure binary law and cases whereby influences can be brought on decision makers, the police, and it, in, it affects their judgment even at the time of a protest. So one would like to think that explicitly through the instructions given to them by their senior officers or from decent common sense, they recognise the need to facilitate protest. I was at a demo this morning, it's about the spy cops inquiry, um, and I, I was feeling at the time there's almost a point now where we should have a public inquiry into why the public inquiry into the spy cops has been so um, thwarted and, and slow, but it, it struck me then that um, the police have actually given up even watching those people who are protesting outside the royal courts because they know that nothing ever happens and so um, even the police can learn that sometimes peaceful protest does mean peaceful protest. That's, that's a helpful view if it's true and I do hope it is but I suspect that they've been caught out, they've been misusing those toys and they're now using other toys like uh, uh, information technology and electronic surveillance and other more modern ways of surveilling our behaviour and identifying the people that they see as troublemakers and batching them all together, both terrorists and so-called domestic extremists, and also the innocent as well, because the process for intelligence gathering is a blunt instrument and it hoovers up innocent, peaceful, lawful people trying to do the right thing. And there are few checks and balances in, in the process and even fewer that are publicly available and have any public leverage and confidence. Well, one of the issues at the moment is about automated facial recognition, whereas where there's almost no oversight, there are no rules, the police are actually making up their own rules about how to use it and whether or not to use it, you know, so clearly um, there's a long way to go on um, watching the police. Um, one of the things that has been just there seems to be a big movement of companies and local authorities using civil injunctions to stop protests and uh, have you have you come across that at all in your work I have and I've seen this as well and it's a deeply troubling development um, I saw the slap injunctions from the 1990s um, where uh, companies brought civil claims and threatened punitive damages claims against environmental activists at roads protests 
and it happened before, and it certainly happened regularly since. And the latest emanation of that is the INEOS injunction against anti-frackers in the northwest and elsewhere, and that's deeply disturbing. One would expect, sadly, big companies with deep pockets to take that sort of action against uh, activists, and just pausing there, I see that they make their claim against unknown people, so they're not even going for known targets. But what's as, if not more, troubling is the way the courts bend over and allow these, and this a deeply troubling High Court judgment supporting that injunction. And just, I mean, you know this as well as I do, one of the many troubling features of that is it puts into the criminal punitive sphere civil issues, and by that I mean this, that the police enforce injunctions on behalf of companies and criminal or deep sanctions apply to those who supposedly breach them. And so, for example, as a result of these injunctions, people involved in supporting protesters or people taking benign action like slow walking near um, fracking sites can get a f caught into the injunction and then taken to court and then the police and of course the courts and the uh, businesses bring sanctions against them and that's really, really troubling. Well, it can cost them a lot of money. It could even cost them their houses if they were, you know, h homeowners or, I mean, a, a lot of their, you know, f future prospects. Yes, I mean, we're on the same page as they say. Um, and I think the courts actually need to stand up to the bullying of companies and the deep pockets of companies by saying, look, even though you're bringing a claim, getting an injunction against people unknown, and there have been a couple of individuals who have stood up for the rights of activists and brought these cases to court, but essentially these are injunctions into the darkness. Uh, but the courts must take responsibility for defining the scope of lawful protest and limiting the power of the businesses to bully people and um, ravage the environment for their own shareholders' profit. And the courts have responsibility. And the INEOS injunction is being appealed further. And one would like to think that the higher courts will take a much more robust approach to that sort of sweeping blanket injunction than the lower courts have so far. And have a sense of fairness about this whole thing. You mentioned slow walking. That's yes. one of the absolutely ridiculous yes. sort of things you weren't allowed to do, walk slowly. Yes, uh, it's shocking, really. I mean, it's part of the escalation from uh, minor demonstration into civil breach of injunction, then into criminal sanctions, and from civil sanctions into criminal law and potentially prison. But this is all very bleak, and one must think positively, which is, although the companies have the pockets and, in many cases, the best lawyers, though not exclusively, I hasten to add, they're not right. They don't have right on their side. They don't think to the future. They don't think about the environment and the future of their children and our generations. And when misuse of the law takes place, sometimes it's corrected and identified by courageous people, activists and litigants, but also, one would hope, a few judges as well. Do you think there's enough protection for people who want to protest legally and peacefully? The way I always see it is that there's different ways of influencing the political protest, process. 
And the one that those without power and money take is by political open protests, demonstrations and processions. And they should be treated in an equivalent way at least, I think better, than those with access. And by that I mean people who lobby and people who can make donations to political funds behind closed door, covertly, unaccountably. And what's fair for those business and private interests ought to apply to activists who are acting for altruistic reasons, normally, protecting themselves and their genera and future generations. And they ought to be accorded the same respect as those who do things in the dark. They ought to be given a voice, they ought to be allowed access, they ought to be given a, um, the opportunity to express themselves, and above all, they ought to be listened to, and what they say ought to be acted upon. And as long as the police and the authorities don't recognise that basic parity and those basic principles, protesters, and they're not all the same, but using that as shorthand, protesters are always going to be hard done by and shortchanged by the legal system. Obviously, one of the things I try to do in the House of Lords is to bring this sort of issue. So whether it's <clears throat> a climate emergency or, or something about the spy cox inquiry or the fact that the police are using children as police spies, that sort of thing, I, I try to bring it in. And sometimes I have the most unlikely allies. You can't always predict the people that are going to actually have a strong sense of justice you know, I mean, I, I do look for those people in the House of Lords and they are there. It's very encouraging to hear that because there are beacons such as you and the Green Party who hold out hope for activists. And it's nice to think there's some remnants of decency and common sense amongst other politicians across the political spectrum. I'm sure there are because many people have the best of interests and the best of motives. And it's a question of appealing to them and ensuring they've got the courage to express them and to come together to take that view. But also to give them the information. I mean, I see one of my functions in the House of Lords is actually bringing information that they are not aware of already, because many of them have never heard of a, a Green speak or heard the Green point of view. And so that, that I see as part of my role. Well, that's, that's great. And, and it is about information as well, because one's got to trigger the right motivations in people by giving the information the opportunity to say these things. And so when they're inundated by briefings from their own party HQ, I'm sure, and you know this better than I do, that they feel unable or perhaps they just don't have the time or, or motivation to think out of the box, and that's what it requires. Um, I've got an additional question from someone on tr Twitter. It's Netpol, and they say, ask Mike why he thinks the undercover policing inquiry is failing so badly <laughs> and whether he thinks there's any chance core participants will find out why they were spied on. Well, I know this, this podcast has a limited amount of time and I could go on for exactly. days. Exactly, no, that's why I left it to the last because that's going to be... I think there's many levels of answering this. The, the basic one is secrecy and power. The, the state wants power and likes to operate in secrecy and, and with the combination of intelligence, so-called intelligence, from the fruits of undercover policing, if you can call it that. Most they, of it was completely useless. I mean, or, or there was no information. Well, it, well exactly. Um, and that same knee-jerk reaction that the police have is sadly being reflected by the current chair to the inquiry, who has a, a background both in conservative views of society, and those have been exposed by the activists, and the view of state 
secrecy and control. He has a deeply conservative view. And so the politics and the personality don't hold out great hope for activists. But I think it's worth making the point that it's the activists who expose this scandal. They, through their, it sounds deeply patronising, their suffering from being um, spied on in the most intimate ways by by undercover police, if you can dignify them by calling them that. They exposed, um, identified police officers, and they brought this inquiry into effect. And the Home Office, the Home Secretary, someone called Theresa May, had no alternative but to set up an inquiry. And it's the initiative and dedication of the activists who give one hope that they, through the crumbs dropped by the inquiry will be able to piece together and find out for themselves on a DIY basis really what happened to them. They're not going to find out everything because the police and the inquiry won't allow them to but they made huge strides already and I'm sure will make huge strides in the future. It's interesting that at the very start the first judge at the inquiry was Pitchford and although obviously most judges come from a quite conservative background I did have hope that he was able to listen, but of course he died and was replaced by Mitting, who does seem to have a rather fixed idea of society. He, for example, suggested, perhaps you'll correct me if I'm wrong here, he suggested that police officers would not have indulged in these affairs with the women uh, because they were married. That's right. That's just one example of his outdated view of people. He trusts the police, he's deeply misogynist, he has views which are incompatible with a modern egalitarian state, and some of the victims of spying in justice, black justice groups in particular, are deeply concerned about some of the comments he's made about his view about society as well. And um, one has to hope that despite, rather than because of the personality involved, progress will be made. Is there a move to get rid of him, to, to have somebody who actually is capable of listening? The activists, once they got measure of him, for example, his membership of an all-male um, uh, club, realised what they're up against, and they tried to get the Home Secretary, the current Home Secretary, to replace him. Failing that, they tried to get a panel, as happened in the Stephen Lawrence inquiry, into place to support him and, and assist him with his vast gaps in emotional and political intelligence. That so far failed. He seems to set on his own track uh, and a panel will only take place when it's too late in the inquiry process for the context of the spying to be uh, discovered properly. You're not holding out much hope for the public inquiry then? I mean, we've got no idea of how long it's going to take or...? The inquiry could be a real opportunity to expose what happened, learn lessons and build for the future. It could have been that. A lot can come out of the inquiry as well, but more than necessary is being hidden, and that's entirely the responsibility of the current chair. I mean, you do your work on as a human rights um, lawyer because you care about not the issues quite so much, but just the, the principle? I think it's all bound together. Fortunately, the principles and the individuals and the, the legal issues all combine to make it an exciting, interesting and important uh, role that I play. 
but it's the activists and the defendants who really are the ones who are bearing the brunt both in terms of activism and fighting their cases and, and, and being resilient enough to continue despite all efforts to quell them. It is tough for them. It is tough. Yes, it is. Um, now, I'm going to go into the myth-busting section where I pose some of the common arguments that people might say about this sort of stuff. Um, so I'll say what the myth is and then hopefully you can respond to that. Um, now, uh, the first one is, we won't have any human rights if we leave the EU. Well, one plank of the human rights legislation will fall away, the European Union Charter of Fundamental Rights. But fortunately, the principal... Um, source of human rights, the European Convention on Human Rights, is separate to the EU and that will stand through the Human Rights Act, the UK's Human Rights Act, even after we leave the EU, if we do leave the EU. But one can have no doubt that that's next on the swivel-eyed reactionary politicians' uh, radar as a target for them and, um, and one has to be concerned that that is the next uh, piece of the civil society and uh, legal system that will fall. I mean, obviously, at the moment, we've got no idea what's going to happen, well, today, tomorrow, next week, with the EU. Um, now, some people think that the Human Rights... You've just referred to this, that Human Rights Act should be scrapped. Um, do you think there's an argument for scrapping it in any way, or, or, because we could, or, or that it could be improved? There's no rational argument for scrapping it. And in fact, it's an essential part of maintaining the power of individuals to challenge the state in so many areas from the, I mean, just trotting out what the rights are. They include the right to life, the right not to suffer injury, the right of assembly. And one would like to think that those are such fundamentally basic, proper rights to have that the Human Rights Act should be uh, inviolable. But, um, but there are people out there who, buoyed up by recent events or not so recent events, will be taking a pot at even those fundamentals. They shouldn't take a pot at the Magna Carta. They shouldn't take a pot at um, the Human Rights Act. Mind you, the Magna Carta didn't say much. That's no, but it is, a, it is a myth, which is a myth that's worth defending. OK. Um, now, uh, the last myth is that human rights lawyers are just fat cats abusing the system. Well, I could barely keep a straight face when I said yes. that, actually. Well, but I think if one looks at the way that um, legal aid and public funding has been attacked, not just for years, but for decades, um, and the way that people across the legal uh, society have been concerned about the reduction in the power to exercise rights through funding, through changes in procedures, um, human rights are being put forward despite rather than because of um, the funding system and um, there aren't any fat cats and I can't think of the right analogy here You are definitely not fat But the, um, <laughs> but the, the, the dogs and the dog trainers um, uh, are, are in the ascendant at the moment unfortunately uh, what are you saying exactly? Do you feel that then um, civil liberties, human rights are under a threat of any sort? Yes, I think they are because they're under substantive threat in the way that rights are being undermined by changes of law and judges' decisions. And the mechanisms for enforcing rights are also under threat. And one of those is 
proper funding for individuals who want to exercise their rights in the courts, and that's things like legal aid or you know, the obligation to pay fees in order to go to employment tribunals, which was fortunately corrected. But it's things like that. It's the substantive rights under attack, and it's the power to enforce them through, among other things, proper funding, which is also under attack. Do you think the change of government would help there? Um, it depends who the new government is. If it's a green government, then I'm optimistic. Yay! Um, if it's other government, other governments, then I'm not so sure. Although there are, and you know this better than I do, some progressive views across the political spectrum who recognise the importance for the fabric of society, for the fabric of the legal system, to have proper rights easily available and uh, robustly enforced. Well, dissent is a healthy part of any sort of government because if you don't have dissent, you don't know all the facts and all the, you know, the, the full debate. So it's incredibly important that some people disagree with you sometimes. You know this better than I do, and from new and different, perhaps challenging views, often comes orthodoxy. And how can one have that bubbling stew of, of, of thought without someone, this analogy is really failing quite badly, <laughs> um, without someone putting the right ingredients in? No, it, it, it always seems to me that um, Greens, protesters, activist campaigners, we're, we're often seen as outside society, whereas in fact we are a really valuable component of society and, and um, incredibly important that we play our role. I think it goes back actually to that first case I mentioned, which is the King's North case. That was ten years ago when there were reports both by um, uh, scientists and by... Uh, uh, international institutions warning about the dangers of climate change and the need to take urgent action. And the, the Greens and environmentalists 10 years ago recognised both the threat and the failure of government and business to take it seriously. And they may not have achieved everything, but they certainly proved one point, which is they are ahead of the curve when it comes to that slight climate change. I want to say thank you to you for all your work because I know it must be really hard for you to to do all this and you do have successes but presumably you have fa failures as well. Well that's right I mean you talked about putting into effect uh, political views in criminal trials and there have been mechanisms for doing that so-called justification defences like the right to protect human health and life in immediate need of protection and so-called necessity, or the right to take action to prevent a crime, use force to prevent a crime, or to cause one bit of minor damage to protect other property in immediate need of protection. And those justification um, defences which have, have led to acquittals of people across the range, from people concerned about GM crops to anti-war activists, to anti-weapons activists, to climate change activists, have been um, attacked and diminished by judges and one of the deep concerns is that the courts and the system are very happy to reduce rights but fail to address the underlying concerns that led to the activism, fail to deal with illegal wars and illegal actions during wars, fail to lead, uh, deal with um, uh, weapons of mass destruction and fail to lead, deal and lead the way on climate change changes to our uh, way of life that are so necessary as you never denied them. So we're both in the business of educating people who um, 
don't know enough about those issues. Well, the activists that I represent are doing a fantastic job doing that, but with limited resources, um, but with all the passion that the politicians lack. Well, thank you very much indeed, Mike, um, for all well, for coming here today, but also for all your work. It's really incredibly valuable. That's very kind and very um, flattering.